0: Good morning, church. As Steve said, we're sharing on stewardship. We set aside a few Sundays every January where we teach on that. And we were talking about givers of the Bible. That's what's been the theme through these messages. We talked about the original giver, which is the Heavenly Father, on our first message. Last week we talked about the mighty giver, which was the widow who gave uh, a mite. It's like a penny, uh, and what she gave was greater than large sums of money. Now. Today we're going to be talking about uh, two different givers, and the message is contrasting givers, two different kinds of givers. But and it's in Acts chapter four, so you could turn there if you'd like. You can follow along. I'll read it in just a second. But I was going to begin by telling you the story that I heard from another pastor about uh, giving, and there were these two brothers who, uh, in a city, they were businessmen. They had built a, a, a kind of an empire of industry. And uh, they had gone to church when they were younger, but they had kind of drifted away and they were busy in life, but they had a reputation. They built this uh, empire of industry largely through um, um, means that uh, wouldn't be pleasant for church people. (laughs) And uh, they had that kind of reputation, the kind of shady drills, uh, shady deals and strong arming people kind of a thing. Well, one of the brothers died. And so the brother that was still living went to the church that they had grown up in and said, Pastor, we want, my brother died. We want to do the funeral. Would you do the funeral? And I was kind of uncomfortable, but the pastor said, you know, it's an opportunity to share, to witness, uh, to see where they're at. Maybe we could speak into their life. And so they had this meeting where they we were talking about it. And the brother who's still living came and said, listen, I don't care how you do what you do in the, in the ceremony but all i want you the thing that i want is this i want you to tell everybody that my brother was a saint and he was like uh well you know uh and it was uncomfortable and so this conversation you know unfolded where I was like first of all it's not really my place to maybe there's you know the reputation that you guys have and and so this brother that was still living he he said you know look i'm a i'm a guy who gets what i want i'm a shaker and a mover I know, pastor, that you, you need, this church could use some money. You know, you've got some projects, you're trying to fix some things. I, I'll tell you what, if you just tell people, my brother was a saint, I'll give a large donation to your church, and you can use it however you want. And Well, that was even more uncomfortable because the, the pastor said, that's not how it works either. It's not, you're not supposed to give for that. kind. Of... And So he was really pushing on the pastor, and finally the pastor said, look, okay, look, fine, fine, I'll do it, no, no worries. So the day came, funeral, pastor got up, all the ceremony was good. Then he came up in the pulpit and the pastor said, began to give his talk. And he said, I want you to know what this man was like who died. And then he began to tell everybody the truth about all the things that he had done. The shady deals, the backhanded, the backstabbing, the the dirty talk, the... The abuse of power, I mean, he laid down everything that this guy had done and gave the true character of the man. And then when he got to the end, he says, but I'll tell you what, compared to his brother, this man was a saint. <laughs> Smart pastor, right? <laughs> now I say that, I share that story because it's a, it can segue into motives for giving, you know, because the, the older brother there was really motivated for the wrong reason. You know, that's, you don't give for that reason. And you're going to see in the, the scripture today, the two characters that we're going to see, they have different motives in why they gave. Now, with that, I want to read to you the first example, which is Barnabas. And it's in Acts chapter 4. And, and this is where I pick up reading. This is Luke writing, verse 32 Father, I just pray as we look at this passage that you would teach us, you would shape our hearts and that within this community of believers, you would raise up givers with the right motive, good stewards of what you've given to us in Christ's name. Amen. Now, the example of Barnabas, he's a good example. And the points that I I give you, they come right out of the language that Luke is using. And the first point I give you is that good givers live with an open hand. Now, Every year when we do the stewardship series, at some point I talk about the open hand. And if you're new, it works like this. In an open hand, if you lift your your hand out like this, anybody can put something in it, right? And if you have a closed hand, you can't put something in the closed hand. It just hits it and falls off. And what we see in Scripture is God wants us to live with open hands like this, which means, God, you can put whatever you want into my hands. I'm a steward of what you give me, but then we can't do this. We have to live with an open hand, which means when God puts whatever he does into our care, we like that because it's open, but when God says I want to use what I've given you for help to someone else or for ministry, we can't do this. We're not supposed to suddenly uh, override God. We're supposed to live in a way that our hands are open where he could put anything in but he can also take anything out. And we know that he is the owner of everything and we're merely a steward. And we get that very clearly in this section. We're seeing the early church. Now Now in Acts chapter 4, this is a a, a new thing. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. It's born, comes it to life in Acts chapter 2. Uh, The apostles preaching are drawing thousands to come into the church, and you get a little glimpse of what the community is like, and you see that they lived this way. They lived with this open-hand idea, and here's things that I put to build this idea up. Number one, they are unified in their commitment. Verse 32 says, the full number, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. One heart and one soul. Heart, commitment. Soul, the energy behind what we're doing. Imagine a church where every single person in it is fully committed and fully energized for the mission of God's church. That's what the early church was like. There wasn't this division amongst them. We have different ideas about how we should be doing things. We have our own agenda. The church is the most diverse entity on the planet. How many ethnicities, even in this room, how many different ethnicities, how many different cultural backgrounds, how many of you from different socioeconomic economic strata, and yet we all come together and we are unified by Jesus Christ. We're unified because we have this common thing that we, were, we are sinners saved by the grace of God. And God takes you out of that state, and he puts you into his family, and suddenly we have brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a spiritual family. Now, I've got brothers and sisters of blood relation, and I can tell you, I love them. And if they have something going on in their life I can help them with, I do it because I love them. That's what family is. And there's this this picture in the early church where God brought all this diversity of people together together and yet they were one. And they were one, meaning they're fully committed to the brothers and sisters that are around them. What kind of needs were there? If I can meet it, I'm going to try and meet it. And that's part of the picture we get. The open hand idea was I have brothers and sisters in Christ. Whatever God gives to me, if I have the ability to help them, I'm going to help them. That's one of the things we get here with open hand. They're fully committed, but they are also unified, not in just commitment, but in their care for one another, because it says they held everything in common, meaning whatever I do have in my hand, I don't think of it as just mine, only for me. I held it in my hand in such a way that there was a commonness that if they needed it, then I would utilize what I have to help them. They held everything in common. Now, I've done this before. I pointed out the difference between, because the word common, the, let me tell you what the early church was not. It was not a commune. A commune is where you get a group of people and then maybe they go live somewhere. And when you go into that, everything you have kind of goes into the community uh, ownership and you don't have ownership. You give up everything. You're just part of the commune. And there's usually people at the top who decide and and divvy out like that. And this is similar, really, if we were to look at, at a national level, communism. I mean, communism itself, there's compulsory or forced sharing of goods because people are thought to not have the right to own anything. People come in and they take things and then they put it into like this pot And they divide it out how they see fit. This is communism. That is not what is being described. But then there's also socialism. Socialism now, it acknowledges the right to property, but it compels people to give certain percentages to others. Now you have the right to own, but we have the right to tell you what to do with what you own. As one writer said that some need to give more than others. And when you compel people to give a certain percentage of what they own based upon how much they earn, that is an incipient form of socialism. Incipient meaning in the initial stage or beginning to happen. That's what's unfolding. But in the early church, it was neither communism nor was it socialism. There was not a compulsory element to giving. The words that are often used in the New Testament, are freely, cheerful. People had ownership. When you look, even in Acts, people owned things. And if they gave to the church, it was because in here they decided to, of their own free will, they were drawn into it. And what was so unique in that early church is there was such a total commitment to brothers and sisters in Christ and trying to help meet what other needs might be there. And there wasn't a compulsory element to it. They gave willingly as the need arose, and there was still ownership. And then you also see this phrase, no one said mine. In verse 32, they're committed heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Now, we talked about this last week, right? The, the kind of the Guam phrase, his own. You know, it's kind of unique. I grew up in the States. I never, we never used that. You know, it's, it's his own. It's my own. But we were talking about how um, God is the owner of everything. We're stewards. He gives to us. And so in this early church environment, it was like we didn't see it as their own. But there was access by God to say they need help. And then of their own free will, hey, I'm only a steward of this. I I can help you. And that's how that early community functioned. So this is what we see. Stewards, good stewards live with this open hand mentality. But also good stewards, what we see here is that they give significantly to where they received blessing. Verse 34 says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, what you see here is this kind of pattern, that God gives, and the word grace is what is utilized in Scripture. A lot of times it was talking about possessions or or income, it uses the word grace, but God gives. The scene is, they're preaching, many people are coming, God's blessing, and then what do they do? Of their own free will, they come, they lay it at the feet of the apostles, and then decisions are made how to help people with that. And so this is a pattern that it's not just in this one spot, but it's the pattern of the early church. Now, from that, a biblical principle that is seen, because people, every time that I teach on this, a common question is someone will come and say, well, okay, we have the free will to, to choose what to give God, but but, but what, what about who to give it to? What if I want to, you know, like 401k, diversify all over the planet, and I'm giving here, 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 and and then the way that I interact with that is what I see in Scripture is the significant amount of what you give should go to the place where your family is, your church family, where you are blessed, and where needs are known, or where you can be met. And the pattern is. They freely choose, they come and give, leadership then uh, decides how the distribution was. That was what it looked like in that early church. It doesn't mean that you can give, I'm deciding to give this much to where I get blessed in my local church, but then also I'm going to give here, I'm going to give there, and people can make those choices. So the way that I always try to phrase it is, is whatever you give, a significant amount of what you give should go to where it is that you were blessed, because that's the pattern that we see here. Even when it says everyone's needs were met, they still gave. They didn't say, oh, well, I already know that person has a need. I don't need to give it there. I'm just going to give it to them directly. Well, you can do that, but there was still a portion that they gave to the total body in that collection. Now, one of the things I like to point out is that whatever this church or any local church can do in terms of ministry, in both meeting needs of people and investing in kingdom-type ministries, it always is going to come out of you. Local churches are not global entities. Some are. We live in an age of megachurches. But I have worked for um, Christian organizations that were global entities. I remember I was actually very blown away by how many people give to organizations that can be these Christian global organizations that are doing a good thing. But I remember working in the mailroom. I remember we had to mail out kind of every giver to that ministry, and it's in like 60,000 because they can pull from the whole planet. They're global. Givers can come from everywhere. But, but local churches, almost all giving right here, the people that are in the local church. And to reach a local area, a lot of time it's determined upon what is laid here and how it's distributed locally. And so there is this pattern you see in scripture that the significant amount of what you do give should go to the place where you are blessed and you served. And I live by that. Personally, that's how I live. But then even pastorally i have had people in this church who have said pastor we're PCS and we got we're, we're going to leave you know but but i'm going to keep giving to your church we like what you're doing and i would say to them look when you land somewhere and you're in a church you need to give to that church that's what i teach here that's what i believe is biblical and when god moves you you need to give to where you go and I don't pull that out of thin air. And that's one of the reasons why I try to to weave it in as we go through this series. The other thing that I would say is that when they gave, do you recognize that they gave in such a way that there were not strings attached? They didn't come and lay it at the apostles' feet and say, you know, I'm going to give this, but you got to use it this way. I'm only going to give it if you apply it here. Here. And sometimes in churches, there are people, they're givers, and they they care about one specific type of ministry, and they want to see everything they give funnel to that. There have been times, in my experience as a pastor, where people, not here, but uh, it was a way of almost showing their, um, I guess I could use the word rebellion, but like they didn't like the leadership. So we're, we're going to give because we know we're supposed to, but we're going to only give to this and it has to go to that. And I always think like as a pastor or as a parent, you know, it'd be, we don't do that at Christmas, right? Here's son, here's your present, but there's all these strings attached to it. You know, you can only use it this way and that way. And, and if you don't utilize it the way I'm giving you this gift. I mean, a true gift is given without the strings attached and it also protects from giving to yourself. There's a way in which you can give to yourself. I'm going to give, but I'm going to give to what I think is important. Really, you're giving to your agenda. And I'm just saying that you don't see that in Scripture. It's not the pattern. When you give, they came and they laid it, and then the decisions are made how it's distributed. That was the pattern in the early church. Now, the other thing that I say here is that they give freely. I have to point that out because I'm not laying down, you know, boundaries except what I see. But one of the things is that, that, that they, they gave of their own free will. They gave because they wanted to. They were motivated by what God was doing in that moment, and they were motivated because they cared about their brothers and sisters in helping meet needs. So I put here too, good stewards give freely decision-making is in the hands of good stewards. And you see that with Barnabas. You're going to see that in the example. Barnabas makes the decision. Look, it says, so it gives you all the principles, laid it at the apostles' feet, distributed as each needed. And then in verse 36, it says this, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. He did it on his own in that church, and what was going on, he felt led to do that, and of his own free will, he did that. And so I put here, they need to be able to give freely. The decision-making is in the hands of good stewards, and you know what? Decision-making is also in the hands of bad stewards, Because we get that out of Ananias. I'll skip ahead just for a second. But Ananias, uh, what it says in verse 4, chapter 5, it says, While it remained unsold, did did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You see the apostles as they interact with Ananias, because he's going to be a bad example. But even the bad example, what they point out was, it was your decision. You had the property, because he's going to sell property too. You had the property, even after you sold it and you got the money, it's at your disposal to use with it as you want. And so giving is supposed to be something that is f- a free decision that is made. It can't be compulsory. And it's one of the reasons if you, if you hear every January, all, all, I, I preach now a decade on stewardship and I'm very cautious to try to pin people on any type of amount, or where it's supposed to go, because I don't want to infringe upon the freedom that God desires that you give. Freely, cheerfully, and sacrificially should be the description of how you give. Now, you know, I'm drawing this out of an example in Acts, and that's very common. I made a slide to show you there's a lot of things that we draw out of Acts in the early church that become how we do church. We see in Acts that as they went around, everywhere they planted a church, Paul would go, they put elders in charge. He set up what leadership looked like in churches. We still do that. We get that from the Bible. The primary function of elders we see is to teach and preach and to feed the sheep and care for the flock. We see an example in Scripture in Acts where sometimes ministries come up in such a way they take away the time and energy from pastors to teach and preach. And so they, they say, get some some uh, people of good reputation and let them do that ministry. And we see as the church grew, this the two offices of pastor, elder, and servant minister, deacon is a word that's often used, and how they serve together. And one of the roles of that deacon or servant minister is to do ministry in a way that the The pastor and elder has the freedom to focus on teaching and preaching. We get that from Scripture, and that's what we shape here at this church. We see there should be no additions to the gospel when there are cross-cultural evangelism. As Gentiles came in, they couldn't say to them... You also have to be circumcised like the Jews. That was a cultural thing. And sometimes we can be bad about that as Christians. We can, as new people come in, we want to, are we, are we giving them is the gospel or is it just something that's cultural? We get that from scripture as well. And that's what we shape. And then obviously I put giving patterns. A lot of what I give you, it comes out of scripture and it, it, it directs me in how to shape stewardship within the church. That's what Paul did. He was shaping the culture and attitude of giving in the early church, and it's the same type of culture and attitude that for ten years as I've taught here, we've tried to shape. Let me just take you to First Corinthians, or I'm sorry second Corinthians nine, just to show you an example of Paul doing this. He writes there, "The point is this: whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up in his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There's that word cheerful. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. What do you take from Paul's teaching there? Number one, how do you give? Cheerfully, not reluctantly and how do i as a as a leader try to shape it how, not with compulsion there are no contrivances in scripture for giving i did a whole sermon on that once no contrivances because i grew up in an age of a lot of contrivances you give to the church i used to I grew up in Oklahoma, and there was a someone always on t v preaching and evangelizing and there was always an element of of giving if you send money to my ministry, I will send you a holy handkerchief well, okay, I grew up seeing lots of contrivances if you give, you get this, and that's that's God cares about the heart it, 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 he's not interested in you giving because you want something. Now, how to use it? Do you see what Paul says there? There are two things. Number one, to provide for you. I mean, there is a principle he uses farming. Just like a farmer, if he plants a lot, a lot can grow. If you, are, if you plant sparingly, a little bit grows. And the two principles are this. Number one, Good stewards, God knows, and over time, with a good track record of stewardship, my belief is that God builds more into your life because you're a good steward of what He gives you. And there's a way in which you provide for yourself, you provide for your family because you're a good steward. And sometimes there are people that struggle, struggle, struggle. Well, what kind of steward, what kind of track record do you have? But the other half of that is He gives more So that it can be used for good works. It can be used for helping others in ministry. That's what you saw in Acts. You saw, you know, there's giving and then what is given is used to help. And these are the principles that Paul shapes. And it's what I have always sought to shape in the ministry of culture here at Bayview, following after Paul. Now, Barnabas is a good example. Okay? you got the principles there, and then he said, and there was this guy, Barnabas, and he did the very principles we just told you about. He went out, he sold some land, and he brought the money, he laid it at the apostles' feet, he followed the pattern that was there. And now look at this, chapter 5, verse 1 says, but, and I like that because it's like, it's a contrast. Here's a good example, but now I'm going to give you a bad example. And I put here, example of Ananias, his giving was motivated by self. Let me read you the first few verses here in chapter 5. It says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now, the example of Ananias, not a good example. The first point is he essentially, his giving was motivated by self. And you see this contrast. Barnabas was motivated by everything that was described there. He's motivated by God's doing big things they're preaching people are coming to know Christ more people are coming into the family there's more needs that that need to be met and so he goes I can help I can help I'm going to sell this I'm going to bring it and lay it use it for that ministry that was Barnabas's motivation but see Ananias was it's like imagine being in the service and and it's like well did you, you know Barnabas did you, he's son of encouragement what a great reputation I mean that that's what they called him son of encouragement and there's this idea in his head, I'm going to, I have a piece of property. I'm going to sell it and I'm going to go and get the recognition. But what he does is the scripture says that he sells it for this price, but then I'm not going to give all that. I'm going to take away some of what was what I got for that land and then come and, and give the rest. But the problem was, is that he lied. He came and he said... I sold it. This was the total amount that I sold it for. And I'm giving it all like Barnabas. I'm giving all. I sold it and giving it all, but it wasn't all. He actually kept some of it. And here's the thing this is what it says through it is what it's okay. You could have kept what you want. You're not required to give it all. But the problem was, is that you wanted recognition for it all and you lied about it. That was the problem. The problem was he thought he could be deceptive about it and get recognition. His giving is motivated by self, not God or the ministry. He wanted the recognition. I even put here that Ananias wanted recognition that was false. It's one thing to want recognition for something you did. It's a whole other thing to want recognition for something you didn't even do. You did not sell it for that amount. You sold it for another amount. So he gets a little bit for himself, looking like he's 100% sacrificial, like I gave it all, but he didn't. That's the problem. His giving also, then I put, was premeditated sin. It was a plan. Because it says he and his wife agreed together. Look what it says in verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for that much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. And so the first thing I draw out of that is this thought about, it, how it was premeditated, because they agreed together. That means there was this conversation where it says, "Look, you know, Barnabas, see what he did. Let's sell." But let's tell people that it was this amount, and then we'll keep some from ourselves. So he, they they pull each other together. They sit down to make a decision, only the decision is not good. Now, premeditation is worse. Even in like our culture with human laws, we see this. You know, what? this week in my house, we were sitting there, and my 12-year-old daughter was there, and my wife and I, and I think she was on Instagram or something, and we... A comment was made about, I don't know if you've seen in the news, um, um, Alec Baldwin is facing charges, the actor, for uh, accidentally shooting someone on a movie set, and they died. <clears throat> and this is a whole story you can read about if you want, but, but my daughter was like, oh, that's bad. Wait, he could go to prison, w- but it was an accident. And he says, well, yeah, it was an accident, but um, <clears throat> human life is valuable. Even if you accidentally kill someone, you could go to jail. And we were given these other examples. If you're not a good driver and you hit someone, even though you don't mean it, and they die, you could go to jail. Now, it's not as, as, as big of a, a penalty. I mean, I think they're saying maybe six years. But perhaps you know another story in the news of the, of the Idaho murders. Terrible, right? That's premeditated the person they think that they have that if they if they it's not going to be 6 years because of of all of the thought that went into it and the the act of trying to deceive see what they did was premeditated and thought out with an intent to deceive and so it's worse it's worse for them now i put here as well that When we give, it is meant to act as a governor for our desires. But they used it as a vehicle for their desire. Now, what do you mean by that, Pastor? This is another point that I often talk about in giving. Because last week I used this phrase when you give, you have to wrestle in your heart not to buy. To give is not to buy. If I, if I want to buy something and I go, it's going to cost me this, this money. But then if I give this money over here, I may not be able to, you know, if I just don't give it, I could buy what I want. And the problem is that all of us are thinking about buying something all the time. Are you, I mean, are, is, every day there's, a thought coming to your mind. Oh, I could buy, I need a new pair of shoes. You know, I wanted this athletic thing, you know, depending on what your interests are, you know, fishing pole, if you're into fishing, you know sports equipment golfing i need a new club you know if you're into guns all my examples are guy examples i guess you know i don't know or maybe there's a woman out there that likes golfing and shooting i don't know but what well, i just didn't want to venture trying to say what girls think about buying you know but but you're always thinking about this you realize one of the 10 commandments right the last one thou shalt not covet Coveting, it's like inside of us, we're always coveting and we're always desiring what we can have, what we can buy, what we can acquire. And there's this aspect of giving that God actually builds into, even our church experience that is supposed to grade against that desire within us before it becomes something that's too much within us. I'm going to quote one of my favorite pastors, John Piper, he calls this the antidote to covetousness. Giving is an antidote to covetousness. He says, we must fight covetousness almost every day. Every time you give, you must deal with the desire for what you might have bought for yourself. To give is not to buy. I mean, if you're a parent I mean, you know this, right? I've got five kids. Do you know how much we have to give? Every time it's like my wife comes away, all the kids need new shoes. Ah, how much is that going to be? I was wanting to do this over here. I guess that's out the window. We got all, you know. And so how much, as parents, we know how much we have to give to raise up those kids. And just the choice of that, to have kids and raise them up, is going to be sacrificial because there's a lot you're not going to be able to buy if it was just you and your husband. Well, we just want to travel the world. Sometimes I hear that, right? And we're going to have kids later on because kids are expensive. To give is not to buy. Now, Piper goes on to say, God tests us again and again. What do we desire the most? The advancement of His name or 10% more security, more comfort, more fun. And that's why you could say, you know where your heart is by where your treasure is. And there's a way in which giving forces us to deal with that. So the problem with Ananias and Sapphira, they used it in the wrong way. They wanted something and then they gave, not to, to, to grade against coveting, but they used giving in a way for sin. They used it to get recognition. Now, the last thing I put here about Ananias's example is that his giving was judged. His giving was judged, not only him, but his wife also. And as I read through the text, you saw both of them die immediately. Ananias lies, falls down dead, right? The wife comes in three hours later. They ask her because they don't know yet. And she agrees because, yeah, that was the price. She falls down dead. Now, I put the question, why so severe? right? I mean all of us mess up. I mean I hope that standard isn't with us. I messed up. I'm dead. Right? You know, I mean what if it was like that? People come in for counseling in my office, you know, well pastor, you know, dead, you know, Melly my secretary is always carrying people out. There's bodies, you know, just coming out, you know. It's like, you know, dragging them by their feet, I don't know. But why so severe? And I just wanted I put it up there cuz I want to address that cuz that question always comes up and that's not how God always works, but he worked that way in this moment. I think it's unique to the moment. The church is an infant. And just like our infants, we might be overly protective of them until they can grow up to full maturity. He is doing that with that early young church. What did it do? It was known. People, I mean, imagine that story going around. And What would be the result of that? I'm not lying. That would be the result. I am not lying because I heard what happens to the liars there. And what happens is, you have this early church where it's pure. Right in its beginning, there's this innocence in the early church. of sinners becoming saved by grace. And God is doing so much, and it's powerful. And then you have this moment where it's like two people come in, and what we get in this picture is impurity. And God deals with it very strongly in the very next picture. After he deals with that sin, after he corrects That part of the church, that aspect, you go on and pick up a verse 12. Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And look what it says. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots on mats. And it goes on to talk about how it was growing. The church was growing, growing, growing. And then here's this picture, impurity. God dealt with it strongly. Do you know what the result is? Growth again. And it's a picture of like, when we even discipline our children, the hope is that the next thing that comes after is growth, maturity. And this is what we see in that early church. That's part of my response when people ask that question. Why did God deal with it so strongly there? But put his, his giving was judged. And then I want to get us towards the end of this, what we can draw out of it. So then I put here after why so severe, what is the giving pattern to be judged? What is the pattern? And this really is it's going to come back to you. What is your pattern in your life that God will judge? And so I'm going to give you the pattern that I see and also that I've imbibed in my life and talk about. And it works like this. Number one. Sit down together and set aside time for this. Because, first of all, Ananias and Sapphira, they did it. They actually sat down and they talked about it. We have a property. We could sell it. We could give. But then their, their, what gets in there is wrong motives, recognition, sinfulness. But the pattern you see in Scripture, stewardship just itself, you can't steward without Having a sit down and thinking about, I am over this stuff. You must sit down. And I put there together because there's a lot of married couples in the room. So you got to sit down together. It can't be, oh, my spouse does that. You have to do it together. It has to be something you do together and you talk about and you're on the same page. If you are not married, then obviously you sit down by yourself. And then I put after that, after you sit down and think it out, the next thing that you want to do is be motivated by gospel stewardship and that's a lot of what the stewardship series is supposed to do. It's supposed to take you to this realization that one day God will come to you and it's like I gave you this much how did you steward it? Were you a good steward over all I gave you? Did you invest in things that advanced the kingdom of God, that advanced the gospel or did you spend everything I gave you on just your own self? And it's not a question of salvation. It's a question of stewardship. So you sit down, let's say a husband, and wife, and, and the, the, the beginning is, okay, um, we're motivated by this. We need to be motivated by this. Okay? And then the next thing I put is, um, take stock of what God has blessed you with. Well, how much do we have? So I often, with my wife, we think about percentages, but then the first thing we do is, is well, how much am I now making? How much together are you making? And so you have to take stock of all that God has given you. You know, you have these examples of, of Christ where he's giving us a story and it's, it's of, of stewards and the master's gone and the master comes back and he collects his stewards and how much did you do with what I gave you? And he's going through and there's always the one who's like, well, I didn't do anything. And I think that if you don't do what I'm saying, there are a lot of people who are going to be like this steward. We're like, I didn't even think about it. I didn't even think about it. Take stock of everything that you've given to me and then think through how I utilize what you gave me, a measure of it for kingdom purposes. I didn't even think about it. And that's why last week, I gave you an example. Like I, I actually did the math in my own life. The first job I had I made $15,000 and I did the math, but if I retired at 65 and only made that and never got a raise, I would still have half a million dollars. A half million dollars to say, Jesus, Like I gave you half a million dollars, what'd you do with it? And most of us in here, I know you're gonna make a lot more than 15,000 a year. There's gonna be a big number where it's like, I gave you that much, so you must have, you sit down, you think about it, be motivated by the right thing, take stock of what God has blessed you with. And then the next thing I put up here, Agree on what to give back to God. And it better be described with those words, because that's what I get out of the New Testament. Freely, cheerfully, sacrificially. If you're sitting there with your wife, and it's like, okay, I think we should give this much. And one of you is like, that doesn't seem cheerful. That doesn't seem cheerful. It's like, it looks like angst. I'm giving it. You know what I mean? So, like, really, I... First of all, freely is no one is... I'm not at the table. God is, right? But but you have to do it yourself and freely make the decision cheerfully. Where's the joy? You, you talk about that. And then, is it sacrificial at all? Or is it like the, the guys with the widow? They gave large sums, but it really proportionally wasn't that much compared to everything that God had given them. And so that's that's what God gives us through Scripture. And then... The last thing I put here is live by it. Live by it. And this is what I mean by that. So, I mean, January's a time of year where a lot of people are doing budgets. You know, it's, it's the start of the year. So, if you sit down and you go through this whole thing and then you think about, okay, we're going to give this much to God this year, then live by it. Because when I was younger, this is how God grew my faith. When I was younger, we did this and we said, let's give this much. And then like two months into it, it was like the transmission fell out of our van. And then the temptation was, well maybe this week, maybe you know, maybe God wants us I don't know how we're going to pay for that. I wasn't making a lot of money. Maybe we don't give to God that month and we give to the transmission. I mean, I mean, I mean ministry isn't kind of like, you know, it's still giving to God. But then we never grew our faith that way. And well, generally what happened was was we would say, we got to stick by this, you know, because this is what we believe in. And we we somehow we make it work and then God God always provided. And I go back to that, that Corinthians passage, where if we're faithful in our stewarding, that he comes back and gives to us. That is the thing that I've discovered. It's something that, see, stewardship has grown me in my faith in two ways. Number one, in the way that I'm describing, where sometimes it's like, I don't know how we can make it if we give that percentage. And then to see God always give back to us in ways that we make it It teaches you something about God and your faith. Can you live on this percentage and trust God? That's part of it. And the the other aspect of faith is to see over a longer period of time how that stewardship works. Because our family has grown and God, we're not rich. I mean, we're rich, I guess, if you compare us to a lot of people in the world, you know, because... The numbers, you know, the average, what people make when you throw in Asia and Africa. But, but God has always provided for our family. And sometimes he's provided in ways that really surprised us. And we go, wow, God, I didn't see that coming. And um, that's why I say live by it. See, if you don't sit down and think about what you're going to give, that last part never happens you're never challenged then to go, well, we said this much. How does God ever put tension? The tension is always reactionary. It's just like month to month, I'm going to see what I'm going to give. And that's not stewarding. Stewarding has like this projection. When we, if you are somebody who does, you know, retirement, those kinds of things, it's all this long period and those kinds of things. So that's why I put in there, live by it. Now, The other thing that, you know, I think about is uh, if you don't do this, a lot of times what happens in people's lives is as they grow, God blesses them. But then a lot of, as they grow, it just flows back into building more of a lifestyle for yourself. Bigger vacations, better cars, bigger houses, which in and of themselves is not evil and not bad, and I think when God blesses us, that's great, but there's a way in which, for us, and this is why I've always used the strive to tithe, and I try to not specifically say this percentage, but some people are like, we only give this percentage, it's just under 10, and then some people, we give 10, but then over time, and this is the only way that my wife and I have done it, is like, well, we've we've gone to 10%, can we do 11? And see, over like a long period of where God blesses us and gives us income, if we could try to grow a little bit more, what we're giving back to Him. But then He always comes back and builds it back into our life. That is one way, if you take stock year by year, how you can grow and be somebody who is a, is a bigger and bigger giver to God. Because if you don't do that, I mean, like I said, I'm always thinking about how I can spend my money, right? And the rule is this inevitably, When you make more money, you just figure out ways how to spend it, right? I mean, it's like, I don't think about buying $100,000 cars ever. But I mean, if I made a whole lot more money, maybe I would. I mean, maybe I would. I mean, where are you in that strata? What is it that you think about buying? You know, mine's still down at like the sports equipment, you know. (laughs) I think about those things, a hockey stick, right? You know, I pointed at a hockey guy. <clears throat> rare bird no ice here in island but the thing is is you if you don't you can always end up just spending it all because that is the general rule of thumb in life is people their their spending always expands to whatever their income is and so the one of the reasons in our stewardship series i always try to give this is it's a way of god building it into our lives to to battle against covetousness and to grow our faith Now, lastly, I'll leave you with this. Titus 2.13, Christ died to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good deeds. 2 Corinthians 9, the bounty that God gives to us is for every good deed. Like God cares a lot about growing us as stewards in a way that we're investing it in the family of God, in gospel kingdom work. When I came to this church... I was an associate pastor, and we had another lead pastor in the first few years. It was really tight. you know they hired when I came on, I think it was three, four months later, I took a pay cut you know because because it was really tight here in that first year, we cut the missionaries by half Now imagine as a church, we write and we tell every missionary we 're having to cut what we support you with half and when I became the lead pastor, I remember talking with the elders said, look, this is what I'm used to growing up with in life is we always set aside some Sundays in January where we taught stewardship, not because we want to raise money, but because we want to raise up good stewards and people who grow in their faith. And over this decade, we've seen God bless this church and grow as my belief is, is that we've become better at being stewards in, in the church. And there was a point where we wrote all of the missionaries and said, we're going to support you back up again. You know, and we, I remember getting letters, Andrew's over the mission, you know, it's like the sending, you know, excited that they were going to be supported better. And that is the purpose of the church. That what you see in here is that the people that give, it's used to meet the local needs here within the family, within the local community, and to support gospel work from here globally. Some of the missionaries we have are in the Middle East, they're in Africa, they're in far places of the world. And it is a joy to be able to support those kinds of things so that someday when you are like standing before God and there's an assessment of stewarding, it's like I was part of these efforts at kingdom building, that making your name spread. And that is the, mo- the ultimate motivation for me as a pastor. And it has been a blessing to serve in this church and to see it grow in that way. Father, thank you so much for your work in our hearts and in the community of this church that when we put our faith in the truths of Scripture, even in the area of stewarding, Lord, that we see you be faithful to your word. And I thank you for this church that over the, the decade that you've had here, me just serve and with the other elders that we have Taught biblical principles, and we've we just let you work in the hearts of people, and see what you do. And you have grown this church, and you have used it to bless other churches on this island, to support other churches, to support missionaries, and to grow in that Lord. Even this summer, planting another church on this island. That we are invested in you and your name, in the gospel, and seeing your kingdom grow, and we are also caring committed, Lord, to meeting the needs of our own family, to know how we can bless one another, to live with that open hand, that whatever you put in, that it can be used by you, Lord, if you ask, because you are ultimately the owner and we are stewards. I pray that you continue to grow these things in our church, use us, and then, Father, just that individually, The people in this church, the members of this church, the people who are sitting here, that you would grow in their hearts an understanding and the value of what stewardship is and that our faith would grow. And I commit this up to you in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand and we'll just finish worshiping together.